The following sermon was preached at Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. morning church please turn in your bibles this morning to genesis chapter 21 genesis 21 we are continuing this morning with our study of the life of abraham our summer study in the life of of Abraham. And if you have been with us for much of this series, then you will have discovered how very relevant these chapters of Genesis continue to be for the church today. As we have looked at Abraham's life, God's faithfulness to fulfill his covenant promises to his people has repeatedly stood out, especially against the background of Abraham's faith which has wavered at times uh, between being very strong to being very, very weak. Uh, Most recently in Genesis 20, Abraham has undergone a trial very similar to the one that he underwent 25 years earlier in Egypt, where out of fear for his life, he lied to Pharaoh about Sarah, his wife, claiming she was his sister. Now, instead of responding better the second time, He responds in almost the exact same fashion as before, this time lying to Abimelech in the very same way, demonstrating once again that Abraham's blessedness was most certainly not a result of his exemplary personal holiness. It was because of God's sovereign favor and grace. Nevertheless, God uses Abraham's failings to humble and to chasten him with the result being that they become an instrument by which God shapes and grows his faltering servant. And I've said it several times in this series, it's an encouragement to know that this man, Abraham, uh, a a giant of the faith, uh, his faith is um, uh, memorialized in uh, Hebrews 11. He is called the friend of God, uh, and yet he struggled. He struggled, just as we struggle. Amen? Now, we see some of this here in Genesis 21, as Abraham finds himself yet again in another situation in which he must trust and obey God. And this time he does, even when doing so is profoundly difficult and personally heartbreaking as we're going to see. Now, this morning we will be focusing on verses 8 through 21, but let's read beginning in verse 1 of Genesis 21. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. 
Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said, Sarah said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bowshot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with his bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, and we praise you for your word this morning. And we thank you for the great salvation that is ours through faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now as we uh, hear your word this morning, I pray, Father God, that you would anoint me to proclaim it, uh, that you would enlighten all of us with eyes to see and ears to hear what your Spirit is saying to your church this morning through your word. Let your word, O oh God, be good seed sown on good ground in each and every one of our hearts. And let it bear much lasting and abiding fruit in the time to come. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, in our passage this morning, we want to consider both the human drama before us and the ongoing spiritual significance of that drama. The ongoing spiritual significance of these historical events. These are real people. These are actual historical events that have taken place in real time in history. 
And yet they also represent for us and point us toward important spiritual truth that we need to know and to understand. Now, the first thing I want us to see this morning is how the arrival of Isaac has been an occasion for both joy and heartache in Abraham's household. The joy, of course, is not difficult to see. They have been waiting more than 25 years for this day to come, and on more than one occasion seem to have been convinced that it never would come. But it has, and there is great celebrating going on including here on the day that Isaac was weaned, uh, which for them was a significant milestone. It marked a child's movement out of the vulnerable days of infancy to the less vulnerable stage of true childhood, usually around three years of age. And so it was a cause for joy and even relief for Abraham <clears throat> excuse me, and Sarah. And then something happens on the heels of this very happy event. If you look at verses 8, through 21, uh, which we just read, you see a conflict which re-enters into the family life of Abraham. Once again, as in Genesis 16, Hagar leaves, and this time she's expelled along with Ishmael, although I guess she was expelled along with Ishmael the first time being pregnant, Um, and this time it's for good. For years, there had been discord in Abraham's family. And yet, for 14 years since the birth of Ishmael and the first flight of of Hagar, there had been some manner of peace in the household of Abraham. And they had managed to stay together and to to make it work, although I'm sure it was difficult. In in today's terminology, they would be deemed a a dysfunctional family, uh, to say the least. But with the birth of Isaac, tensions were at a new high. And you can understand why. You know, Ishmael now was a teenager. Uh, although I, I hate that term. That's not really a biblical term. Uh, neither is the term adolescent. Um, but he was about 14 years old or so. He was old enough to know uh, that he was slated to be the heir of Abraham. And when a son came by Abraham and Sarah, Ishmael immediately knew that he would have been displaced as the heir of Abraham. And the resentment apparently builds. And then there's this great feast given for Isaac on the time of his weaning. And at this feast, the pressure becomes unbearable. And Sarah sees Ishmael, now about 17 years old, mocking. Not merely, you know, playing or teasing, but ridiculing, maliciously mocking little Isaac. The word used here. for laughing, is one that has the strong sense of mocking, a a, a derisive kind of laughter. Uh, One commentator explains why this would have happened. He says this, The prospects and expectations of Ishmael are suddenly shattered. He had grown to youthful vigor, confident that he was to inherit great wealth and the power of his father. Now the true heir appears. Ishmael is moved to mad hatred. Proud and impetuous, he does not conceal his chagrin. On the occasion of a great feast given in honor of Isaac, he is guilty of insolence and mockery and insult. And Sarah sees it. And so Sarah immediately demands that Abraham drive out Hagar and Ishmael from the midst. And as she does so, she utters some very important words. She says, the son of this slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. 
And some of you may recall how in an earlier chapter, chapter 16, uh, there was a divine statement issued about Ishmael's future, which stated that when he was older, he would be a wild donkey of a man, right? Wild donkey of a man, that his hand would be against everyone, that he would dwell over against all his kinsmen. Uh, In short, the prophecy about Ishmael's life from the very beginning was that he was going to be hard to live with. Now, whether Sarah was aware of this divine prophecy or not uh, is not known, but in this account, we are certainly seeing the beginning stages of this prophetic statement, even at 17. Um, Now, just as an aside, we see a more full-blown fulfillment of this in Psalm 83. In Psalm 83, verses 5 and 6, we are told about nations related to Israel Uh, which are yet set over against Israel in conflict. And we'll pick it up in verse 4, actually. They say, come let us wipe them out as a nation. And these are the other nations saying this about Israel. Come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. It sounds like today, doesn't it? Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom... And the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites. So here we see the descendants of Ishmael in opposition to Israel, determined to bring about the end of that nation. He's, a, again, a wild donkey of a man um, dwelling over against all his kinsmen. Now, back in Genesis 21, in reaction to Ishmael's derision and his disturbing mocking of Isaac. Remember, he's mocking a three-year-old child, right? Um, Sarah's instincts tell her that it's time for the two sons and mothers to separate once and for all. Now, undoubtedly, mixed in with those instincts were elements of Sarah's own sin. We've already seen back in Genesis 16, that she was capable of being very harsh and very cruel toward Hagar. But at the same time, mixed in with those undoubtedly impure motives, motives are also other motives which were much more in line with God's purposes. Whether she understood that or not is irrelevant. And, and this fact is confirmed when in spite of Abraham's personal reluctance, to send Hagar and Ishmael away, he is told by God that he should not try and prevent this. Apparently, it is not only Sarah that wants a separation to be made. God also has his reasons for wanting Hagar and Ishmael to leave uh, Abraham's household. And when it is all said and done, this passage, this account of a very human and dysfunctional family becomes for us one of the great illustrations of the gospel in the Old Testament. And we see this when we turn to Galatians chapter 4 and look, and look at how Paul uses this story in his defense of the gospel of grace against those in Galatia who were trying to put the believers there back under the bondage of the law. Please turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4. 
Now, without going into all the details of Paul's letter to the Galatians, one of the big issues behind this letter was the problem that some people were coming into the church there and teaching, in essence, that people are not made right with God by grace alone. That sinners are not justified. They are not uh, forgiven and declared righteous. They are, they are not brought into a right relationship with God by grace alone, but by grace plus the observance of certain laws and rituals, particularly circumcision. In short, grace plus works. Grace plus works. So in his letter to the Galatians, Paul goes about refuting that idea, and he doesn't fool around. He does not fool around. There are no pleasantries. There are no soothing words. He's very determined. He's very severe, harsh even, at times. And that is because he knows the gospel is at stake. And therefore, the very souls of the professing believers there are at stake as well. Basically, Paul sets out to show the absolute futility and foolishness of trying to achieve salvation by the works of the law. And he draws sharp distinctions between spirit and flesh and grace and works. And here in Galatians 4, Paul uses the story from Genesis 21 uh, in an allegorical way um, to say that since Isaac was the child who was born as a result of God's working, and keeping his promises, then he is the spiritual ancestor, so to speak, of all those in Paul's day who were seeking to be right with God by trusting in God's work and God's promises. Likewise, since Ishmael was the child whose birth was the result of faithlessness and the attempt to take matters into their own hands, then he is the spiritual ancestor, so to speak, of everyone who seeks to make themselves right with God by their own efforts. And so all the people in Galatia who were going around telling everyone that they had to be circumcised in order to be acceptable to God were to be cast out and regarded as those who have no inheritance among the people of God. And in this passage, which we're going to look at, Paul continues uh, to to, uh, contrast grace and law, faith and works, the spirit and the flesh, And he continues to emphasize the gulf that exists between being a free child of God and being a slave to the law and to sin. Now, I know we heard this read uh, a few uh, moments ago, but uh, let's go through it again a few verses at a time, which is brief uh, uh, commentary. Verse 21 of Galatians 4, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, Do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So we see this great distinction there. Ishmael's birth was motivated by Abraham's and Sarah's lack of faith in God's promise and was brought about by sinful human effort when they took matters into their own hands and tried to produce an heir, the promised heir, through Hagar. 
Isaac, however, was born through the promise of God. And, and the promise stands in absolute opposition to the flesh. Since the promise is a word from God that will be fulfilled by God. Isaac was born by God's miraculous work. God miraculously enabled Abraham and Sarah to have Isaac. When Sarah was well past childbearing years and had been barren all her life. And then we read in verses 24 through 27. Now this may be interpreted allegorically or symbolically. Not that these were not historical events. Again, they were. But he's using them as a tremendous illustration of of his defense of the gospel of grace here in, in Galatians. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, earthly Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children, just as the unbelieving Jews residing in Jerusalem were still in slavery to their sin, right? But the Jerusalem above, the spiritual Jerusalem, heaven, is free. And she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. All right, so again, I think it's it's pretty clear. Paul goes on to use the two mothers, their two sons, two locations, Mount Sinai corresponding to earthly Jerusalem and the Jerusalem that is above corresponding to heaven to further illustrate two covenants. Hagar, Ishmael, and Mount Sinai or earthly Jerusalem represent the covenant of the law. Uh, Mount Sinai is an appropriate symbol for the old covenant since it was there that Moses received the law. Uh, Of course, the law given at Sinai received its greatest expression in the temple worship where? At Jerusalem, which is why Paul says Sinai corresponds to the present Jerusalem. And again, the Jews there were still in bondage to the law. Uh, Hagar, being Sarah's slave, is a fitting illustration of those who are under bondage to the law. In contrast, you have Sarah, Isaac, and the heavenly Jerusalem representing the covenant of promise or grace. And those who are citizens of heaven are free, free, free from the condemnation and the bondage of the law, free from works righteousness and from trying endlessly and vainly to please God by the flesh. And then we come to verse 28. Now you, brothers, now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. It's important that they understand that, or they will continue to fall prey to the false teaching in their midst. It's important for us today to understand that, that we who genuinely believe and have been born again, we, like Isaac, are children of promise promise in a way that is analogous to Isaac's miraculous birth the Galatians and all true believers have become God's children by an act of God's gracious and miraculous power amen not by human effort just as God miraculously uh, brought Isaac into the world 
in fulfillment of his promise, he miraculously, uh, he miraculously births us, right? Spiritually through the new birth. Um, we read in Ephesians 2, uh, verses 8 uh, and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one, no one may boast. Then we read in verse 29, But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Just as Ishmael persecuted persecuted Isaac, so now, Paul says, the Jews, who were still seeking justification by human effort, are persecuting Christians who trust God's promise of justification by faith alone. Um, that was, uh, they were the, the, the primary opponents of Paul uh, throughout his ministry. And we need to understand the flesh hates grace. Amen? The flesh cannot tolerate grace. This is why even some professing Christians absolutely hate the idea of salvation as being by sovereign, free grace. I'm taken back, aback sometimes, taken back sometimes by how vehement some professing Christians are at the idea of salvation by sovereign, free grace. And, and it's interesting. As long as Ishmael was alone, as long as he was the only child, his nature was mostly undetected. But alongside the child of grace, right, he despised, he mocked, and he persecuted God's Isaac. The carnal man, the carnal man just cannot endure that any person should be marked by God as his favored and peculiar people. Not strange, but special people for no other reason that he sovereignly chooses to do so. Right? The carnal man hates that. Hates it. And why does the world hate us? Not so much because we insist upon a certain moral or cultural reform, although that's part of it. But because we say we were chosen by God in grace alone. John 15, 19 uh, says this. How can I find John 15, 19? Here it is. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. The world hates you. And then we read in verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son. It's interesting, isn't it? Not, but what does Sarah say, right? What does the scripture say? God providentially worked this into Sarah's heart, right? What does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. 
There's no other solution. It had to happen. It had to be. God will not allow grace to be mocked by the law. Legalism must be cleansed from the life of the believer if there is to be spiritual life and health and strength, not to mention joy. God assures Abraham in Genesis 21 verse 12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Going back to his original covenant promise. Everything will happen in accordance with his eternal plan. Not the child of fleshly effort will be the, be the heir. No. But the miracle child of grace. It could not be otherwise. It could not be otherwise. And this verse is also a sobering warning to those who are trying to be justified on the basis of keeping the law that they will be cast out of God's presence forever. And then finally, verse 31. So, brothers... We are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And as children of the free woman, we are true heirs of the promise. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. We are not cast out as Ishmael, but we are accepted in Christ as sons and as heirs. Amen? So Paul's point in this passage is that as God's people, we relate to him as the people of the promise, not as people who are relying on our own works and our own righteousness. And that point is, of course, valid for Christians in every age, not just for the Galatians in Paul's day. When we first come to God, church, we, we do so by trusting in him and in what he has done and in his promises, not in what we can accomplish in our own strength, not what we can accomplish uh, through our own supposed righteousness, not what we can accomplish uh, through the uh, observance of, of, of some relig religion and all the rituals uh, contained therein. And not only is this or is that the way that we must first come to him by trusting in him and what he has done, it is the way that we continue with him. Amen? Through the Christian life, throughout sanctification, and on into glory. And it is this reality, really, that continues to trip up so many believers who, although they would profess an understanding of relating to God on the basis of grace, actually do not think about or respond to him in that way at all. They pay lip service to grace, but they go through their Christian life trying to please God, trying to earn their way with God uh, by their performance. That is a joyless Christianity. Amen? That is a joyless Christianity. They respond to God more like an employee than as the child of God that they truly are. As one man has said, quote, they labor under an imagined burden of debt when they might pursue the same path with a much, with a much lighter step and with the zeal of the love of the lover for the beloved. We're called to be lovers of the beloved. Amen? And it's very hard, though, to be that when we labor under this imagined burden of debt. Uh, now, let's turn back to Genesis 21. I want to say something here about Abraham's faith. 
Sarah has asked Abraham to cast out Hagar and Ishmael, and Abraham is deeply distressed. Deeply distressed. Verse 11, and the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. This is perfectly understandable. Ishmael is probably 17 years old now. We have seen indications all along that Abraham loved this boy deeply. In fact, when God came to Abraham to promise him the birth of Isaac, do you remember what his response was in Genesis 17, verse 18? Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In effect, you know, oh, that Ishmael might be the heir of the covenant. Abraham loved his son. Sarah was asking Abraham to cast out his son and never see him again. Fathers, you who have sons, imagine if one day you had to awaken and send your son away, never to see him again. Think about that. That parting and the thought of that parting must have been brutal to Abraham. Here, Abraham must send out a boy that he loves and never see him again into the wilderness, into the desert, the desert heat, perhaps to die. And he would have died, as we read, if God had not graciously intervened, right? Never to be reunited. Do you feel the cost of this parting to Abraham. However Sarah feels about Ishmael and Hagar right now, Abraham loves that boy. His love for his son breaks his heart at the thought of losing him. I, I, I find this to be one of the most heartbreaking passages in all the Bible. I don't even like to read it. I don't even like to read it. And I think most parents can relate to this on some level. I recall the emotional anguish of bringing two of my five children to college for the first time. And I know we have many parents here of young children. That day is coming. You will wake up one day, and that day will be here. Believe me. I was once young. I woke up. I was old. I went to bed one night. My children were toddlers. And now my youngest is 19. I mean, it's just, it's It's incredible. Um, I don't even like to hear the song Sunrise Sunset from Fiddler on the Roof. I get all emotional about it. And it's, it's, uh, but, you know, I recall the emotional anguish. It, it was difficult. You know, my oldest daughter, Rebecca, she went to uh, school in Florida. I'll never forget how incredibly difficult it was to leave her there. Driving home without her, my wife and I, we were just in a fog. You know, we were crying and praying. And then a few years later, we had to relive the whole thing all over again. When we brought our oldest son, Samuel, uh, to school in Massachusetts, our oldest son. We bring our oldest daughter. We had to bring our oldest son. It was so difficult. After having them with us for 17, 18 years, which is, again, about how long Ishmael had been with Abraham, uh, loving them, caring for them. And come on, we, we, we know we're not to build our lives around them, right? We all build our lives around our kids. They seem, uh, their needs, 
uh, everything in the home seems to revolve around the children, right? And all of a sudden, now, you know, you're caring for them, you're loving them, and you have to say goodbye. It's very difficult. And part of that difficulty for me was knowing that things had really changed forever. Um, This was the beginning of them moving out permanently, starting their own lives. We knew that in a few years after they graduated, they probably would not be coming home to live with us. And that's what happened. Rebecca lives in Florida. (laughs) Sam lives in Massachusetts. They live and they work there. Now, I still don't really accept. Well, I guess I do, but I don't. (laughs) When they do come to visit, okay, supposedly, I always refer to it as coming home. I'll talk to them. When are you coming home? And when they leave to go back to Florida or to Massachusetts, I never refer to them as going home. Like, I will never say to them, what time are you going home? This is home, at least in my mind. I never say to them, what time are you going, what time are you going back? In my mind, I'm thinking, what time are you going back there? You know, that, that sort of thing. Um, not back home. Again, this is home. Now, I said all that to say this. As painful and as difficult as all that was, I wasn't saying goodbye to my children forever. I wasn't sending them away, uprooting them from the only life they had never known, never to see or hear from them again. But that's what Abraham was being asked to do. How incredibly more difficult, right? How incredibly more painful was this this burden that was placed upon him. And so God himself comes to Abraham and he says, and this is so beautiful, he says, Abraham, I will provide for your boy. I know it's hard for you to understand what Sarah is saying to you right now, but what Sarah is saying to you is part of my plan. So I want you to listen to her. I just want you to know this. I will provide for your son because I love you, Abraham. I will make him a great nation. I will protect him. And so you do what Sarah has asked you to do, however brutal it seems, however heartbreaking it may be to you. And Abraham obeys. He obeys. He's beginning to understand. After 25 years, right? A long time. He was in the the school of of learning, for God's school of learning for a very long time. He's beginning to understand that the promises of God to him must come through Isaac and not through Ishmael. And so he obeys As the songwriter wrote, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And so Hagar and Ishmael make their way out into the wilderness in Genesis 21, verse 14. And the story closes, of course, with God providing for Hagar and Ishmael just as he had promised to Abraham. He promises to make him a great nation, but... And don't misunderstand that. There's no promise in the passage to be his God. Though we are told that the Lord was with the boy for Abraham's sake. Okay, but God does graciously bless Ishmael and his descendants in this life. Now, concerning Abraham's faith, the loss of Ishmael 
understand this. It forces Abraham to stop hedging his bets with regard to the promises of God. And it sets us up for the scene that will take place in Genesis 22. And Pastor Kayla will be talking about that next week. I'm not going to go into that now, except to say when Genesis 22 arrives and Abraham is now climbing the steps of of Moriah there, right, to sacrifice Isaac at the command of the Lord, there's no other son to fall back on. Take your son, your only son. This is it. This is it. All of the promises of God to Abraham. Everything that Abraham had been hoping for, for all these years, it's all through Isaac or not at all. So there's no other son to fall back on. That son is gone. God has cleared him out of the way so that Abraham's faith must be built up in the very trial of fire now. By trusting the whole of his hopes into the hands of God. And Hebrews 11 makes this very clear. We read in Hebrews 11, 17 uh, and 18. Hebrews 11, 17 and 18. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You hear hear the, the echoes of those words again? Through Isaac, your descendants shall be called. Through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. And then we read in verse 19. One of the great uh, manifestations of faith in the entire Bible He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. He knew, he knew that the promise of God was certain. And even though that promise had to come through Isaac, and even though he was being commanded to sacrifice Isaac, he knew there had to be some way. He didn't know what it was. He didn't understand it. God would have to raise him from the dead, he thought. And figuratively, he did by staying his hand and offering up, right, the ram in the thickets. So in this circumstance, Abraham could not fall back in his mind and think, well, maybe God is going to take Isaac from me and Ishmael will be the that You know, had this taken place, Prior to their departure, he could think that way, right? There was no Ishmael anymore for Abraham. If God was going to establish his seed, it was going to be through Isaac and through Isaac alone. So the loss of of Ishmael makes that scene in Genesis 22 all the more poignant. But understand this. It is the instrument that God uses, the departure of, of Ishmael. It is the instrument that God uses to build up Abraham's faith. He breaks Abraham's heart in order to build up his faith. And I believe his faith was built up. Because in Genesis 22, when God commands him to sacrifice Isaac, upon whom all the promises of God made to him depend, 
there isn't a word of protest. There isn't even uh, uh, anything that says he was displeased or distressed. There was only hopeful obedience. So quite a growth in faith. Yes, he obeyed in, in, in Genesis 21. He sent Ishmael away. But it was a reluctant obedience, I think we can say. He obeyed. Uh, but there was a lot of uncertainty in that obedience. Here, however many years later, his faith had been brought to the point where he could obey this just, this just unthinkable command from God to sacrifice Isaac without a word of protest, uh, without even a question. He just does it. Right? He just does it. Again, God broke Abraham's heart in Genesis 21, building up his faith for the challenge of Genesis 22. And the lesson here for us is this. Because God loves us, he draws our hearts away from anything that might separate us from him or that might compromise our trust in the promises of his covenant of grace. Amen? And that can be painful, and that can be difficult, but it is an expression of God's love to us and his desire uh, to strengthen our faith and to conform us to the image of Christ. And perhaps there's something like that in your experience right now, some hope, some dream, some prayer, and the Lord uh, doesn't provide this, and you think that the Lord is withholding something good from you. Or there's something in your life, something you cherish that you know he wants you to let go of. And you can't do it. You can't do it emotionally. You can't do it mentally. And you're holding on. It could be a relationship. Uh, it could be a job. It could be a position of some sort. Uh, it could it can be a possession, an activity, uh, whatever it might be. It may be that just as in the case of Abraham and Ishmael, the Lord is preparing you for blessing and building up your faith. And may we trust until he gives us more light. Amen? May we trust. Finally, finally, please don't miss the extraordinary compassion and sensitivity that God has toward Ishmael and Hagar. In spite of the fact that they are not within the line of blessing. They're not within the line of blessing. Some argue that they are, that Ishmael is. I think Romans 9, which we can't get into this morning, which also references Genesis 21. I think it makes it clear that Ishmael is not. Uh, Ishmael is not... Um, a child of God. Um, that would sort of undermine, I think, the entire <laughs> argument Paul was making in, in Galatians chapter 4 also. Uh, God has extraordinary compassion and sensitivity toward Ishmael and Hagar in spite of the fact that they are not within the line of blessing. We must not miss God's compassion toward those, uh, these two who were lost and helpless. And God's determination to bless Ishmael and to watch over him while he grew older and to make him into a great nation. Simply because he too was Abraham's son. And in that blessing, in that blessing, 
you see, I think, one of the earliest uh, installments, I guess we can say, of the promise that through Abraham the nations of the world would be blessed. Even those that are outside the line of promise. And you see God's mercy just falling like rain on the just and the unjust alike. And that same reality, there's application of that for us today. That same reality is carried on today when the church proves itself to be a blessing to the world. To those outside, giving itself to care for the widows and orphans and the outcasts in society the very same ones to whom Jesus went and among whom he was regularly found ministering. When we do these things, we are imitating the compassion of our Father in heaven. And it's not necessary that we know in advance the internal destiny to those whom we are ministering. It is only necessary that we imitate the compassion and mercy of our Heavenly Father. We simply have no right, church, to be stingy with the mercy of God or or worse, to rationalize it all away. Now, to be sure, now don't misunderstand, to be sure, the call and the opportunity to be a blessing to the nations is primarily a gospel call to bring the good news of Jesus Christ into all the world. But it is, at the same time, a call to demonstrate the good news of Jesus Christ by being compassionate toward those who are outcast and those who are homeless and those who have been cut off and those who have no hope. We can't separate the two. Amen? We must not separate the two. We are called to proclaim the gospel in word and in deed. By calling, there's the word, by calling sinners to repentance and faith in Christ and through the demonstration of loving good works of compassion and benevolence. Uh, that's how we, as the spiritual offspring of Abraham, right? Through Abraham, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's how we, the church, we who are the spiritual offspring of Abraham, uh, become a blessing to all the nations of the world. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and uh, we praise you for your word to us this morning. Your word is truth. Your word is life. And may it be to us today nourishment to our souls. May it challenge us. May it instruct us. Uh, may it encourage us and equip us. Lord, we, we acknowledge that, that, that there are, there, there's nothing so difficult as to, to walk by faith when there is no sight. But there is nothing more glorious than to trust in you, despite all the evidence to the contrary. Give us the faith of Abraham, that we may trust in Christ, that we may trust and obey, and bring glory and honor to your name always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.